Welcome to the Carnivore Cast, a podcast focused on the carnivore diet and lifestyle, with practical advice from successful carnivores, citizen scientists, and top researchers. I'm your host, Scott Meslinski, and I'm here to speak with experts and experienced carnivores to get answers to your biggest and meatiest questions while helping you live your best life as a carnivore. This episode is brought to you by Element Electrolytes. This month, we are switching it up with an exclusive offer that's only for VIP Element partners, including CarnivoreCast listeners. You can now receive a free sample pack along with any regular purchase when you use my custom link at drinkelementtcom slash CarnivoreCast. I'll provide it in the show notes as well. The Element sample pack includes one packet of every flavor. This is the perfect offer for anyone who's interested in trying all the flavors or who wants to introduce a friend to Element. Go to drinklmnt.com forward slash carnivorecast to get this special offer and claim the deal. Element electrolytes are convenient, evidence-based, and delicious. They're used by Navy SEAL teams, Olympic weightlifters, jujitsu athletes, and everyday people who want to make themselves better like you and me. Dr. Ann Childers is a child and adult trained psychiatric physician with special interest in regaining the physical and mental health of children, adolescents, and adults through standard psychiatric care integrated with principles of nutrition and sleep. Dr. Ann has published numerous textbook chapters on nutrition's effect on psychiatry and is a member of the American Psychiatric Association. She's also an Air Force veteran. Uh, Dr. Ann's talks include concepts around how humans are carnivores and looking at the historical record to draw some of those inferences, as well as um, looking at different digestion um, anatomy uh, between uh, humans and other mammals. Welcome to the show, Dr. Ann. Hi, nice to meet you. Thank you for inviting me. Yeah, of course. I'm really excited to speak with you um, and wanted to just get to know you first. Like, tell me a little bit more about your background, um, how you became a psychiatrist and how you began um, drawing an interest in the connection between nutrition and psychiatry. Actually, I started out as a dog trainer. I was uh, 14 years in the business of animal behaviorist as well as a trainer and started a school. Actually, we started seeing, I would say, a week in our facilities. Of course, I, I wasn't training all those dogs to worry. Uh, but anyway, it was a real education. And the thing that I noticed uh, is that the dogs that were on the higher rated foods at that time were much better behaved. And also they were ready to learn. I think since that time, dog food companies have caught on to that, and some of them will actually advertise ready to learn. But it was really obvious to me. The other thing is that the dogs on poor quality foods, I would see they would have uh, fur that had dandruff and was kind of stuck together, oily. A lot of them, especially, you could especially see these in the labs. And the dogs that were well-fed didn't shed a lot. And they had just beautiful coats, almost like some of them with the long hair, almost like what you'd expect from a meat coat, that kind of texture and softness and condition. Um, and those were the dogs that were also calmer. I noticed that the dogs that were on poor quality foods that had some of the features that I just mentioned, and I should also mention uh, that they had a dried, no dried out nose. You've probably seen that in a dog and dried cracked pads. Uh, mm. Those animals were a lot of times more nervous and excitable uh, than the dogs that were better fed. So it was really clear to me. And then as I got to thinking about getting into medical school, because I felt like I had at the time, at the time I had probably topped out on what I could know uh, about uh, training dogs. So I'd sort of reached the limit Uh that limit is almost infinite now. <laughs> There's so much more <laughs> literature on dog behavior now than there was then. So I thought that I would just go ahead and apply to medical school because I had thought about that for a long time. And um, anyway, so dog behavior became uh, human behavior, especially children, because a lot of what you see, especially in young children, they can't describe it to you. You have to watch their behavior. 
to see what's going on. And I started experimenting actually one time. I can tell you about this one child who was extremely hyperactive, so hyperactive in my office that she was into every drawer, into every waste paper basket. She was just so busy and she didn't even talk, right? And she was about three and a half years old. So she should have been chattering, but she wasn't. It's almost like she was so intent on being busy that there was no room for any other function. And her mom had her on a leash because she had been crawling out of windows uh, to she the explanation she finally gave is uh, she wanted to go to the store and get a princess dress. So I knew she could talk. It's just that her brain was probably going, you know, miles a minute. So what I did, this is what I recall that we did because many years ago, um, is I figured out what she was eating for breakfast, especially, and also what her meals were during the day. I did not want to put her on any kind of medication. I mean, these kids are so young. You have to really stop and think before you start thinking medication in someone in that developmental stage. Um, so I said, okay, she's eating Fruit Loops. And at the time, it was before 2009 when the um, Smart Check program fell out of favor. Smart Check was supported by um, university nutrition departments and others, and of course, uh, the large corporations. And they would put a green check on the box, bottle, or container of any food considered to be healthy. And one of the foods considered healthy was, are you ready? Fruit Loops. And that is what wow. this poor mom was giving her child. She was giving her fruit loops, right? As many parents who came to me were doing at the time. So, so what I did is I said, okay, no more fruit loops. We're going to do bacon and eggs. We're going to do meat and dark leafy greens. Uh, I had I basically got an order for an iron test because so many children that age are low in iron. And when iron is deficient long-term, and by the way, iron is very rich in red meat and very bio bioavailable, and especially in liver. So you can imagine that all these people who believe that red meat had fallen out of favor, they were not giving their children or themselves rich uh, sources of iron. So I said, she's going to eat red meat and she's going to eat bacon and eggs and she's going to get fat. So she's going to get basically a low bulk diet, not a fiber rich diet, but a low bulk diet because she has a tiny stomach and we have to get as much nutrition as we can before she gets full. And then I said, uh, meat and dark greens for lunch, meat and dark greens for dinner. And it was an adjustment, but about two weeks later, came back and I was kind of holding my breath wondering what happened right oh I also gave her a Flintstones children's vitamin right and some fish oil and so anyway uh, she comes back and she's off the leash and she's holding her mom's hand and they're coming down the hall toward my office and she sits her on her lap and her child sits just sits comfortably and is very attentive about what's going on in the room. But before we even reached the room, she said the most remarkable thing, because I had actually gotten a blood sample, which is really hard on a three-year-old. And she looked up at me and she said, Dr. Childers, what did you find in my blood? <laughs> so obviously, this is actually a smart little kid, right? She just was mute because her, her, her food was so deficient. Yeah, And it reminded me of what I was seeing in the training arena. I would see uh, with a partner, with someone helping me with the training, I would see 20 dogs at a shot and it was really clear. And so what I ended up doing actually is pointing to dogs and saying, asking the owner, you, to say out loud to all the others, what are you feeding your dog? This. And I did it only for the dogs that looked really good. I didn't want to shame anyone. I just wanted to point out that the reason that these dogs look so great and behave so well is because they were on a high quality diet. And, and I never went wrong. 
I could point them out. It was so easy to see. Well, I think we should start looking at humans that way. I think we should start figuring out what it is, what the ideal diet is for a human, which, by the way, is to be determined because none of us knows. But uh, we're getting pretty close now. It's it's coming. Um, but we have to figure out what humans need. And then we have to make sure humans have access. And I think if America has that uh, luxury of really eating well, it'll be amazing what happens. Um, and there's a lot to it. There's a lot to learn. So what I'm going to say uh, in this hour in which you and I are joined for this podcast um, will not be complete by any means. But I will try to give as much detail as I can so that those listening have an idea of how I'm thinking about this. Uh, and by the way, I don't expect to be right in every category. So, uh, and I don't expect to be believed in every category, but I do think I can give you some pretty good um, supportive literature, whatever is needed. Yeah. Said like a true scientist and a true clinician. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, I like that. Thank you for sharing that that story that's really fascinating. And then how did um, your understanding and your study of nutrition evolve from there? This episode is brought to you by Optimal Carnivore and their new Brain Nourish. Brain Nourish is the ultimate whole food nootropic supplement to build a better brain. They've combined grass-fed beef brain and lion's mane powder in a groundbreaking formula. These two ancestral superfoods have been used for centuries as a nootropic to improve brain function and overall mental well-being, now available for the first time together in convenient capsules. You can get 10% off your order by going to the link in the podcast notes or in my Instagram bio and using the code CARNIVORE10, all one word, at checkout. Each serving has 1,500 milligrams of organic lion's mane mushroom extract and 1,500 milligrams of beef brain. They only use 100% real mushrooms, organic fruit bodies, which are rigorously tested and for active compounds. The beef brain is sourced from the highest quality regenerative farms in New Zealand. Check out the link in my bio or in the show notes to get yours today. Well, I got sick. Basically, when I was in uh, med school, which was which I graduated med school at Oregon Health and Sciences University, 1992. So back then we were taught by uh, some people who had a book on the subject about eating a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet. And they, they really drilled it into my head that that uh, saturated fat was evil. Um, and I think saturated fat is still regarded that way now. But there are different kinds of saturated fat. And I've got lots of caveats, but I won't go into that right now because I think it just get confusing. But anyway, so I just eliminated all fat from my diet. I went in feet first, which I usually do. <laughs> And by the time I was 45, I had severe osteoporosis. And I also had uh, malabsorption. I had a lot of things. Some of this was because of my own personal genetics, as with everything. But some of it was because I was actually so carbohydrate addicted by that time that I, um, I almost left no room for anything else. And I think I understand what happened there. And I think it happens to more people than just me. Um, I think carbohydrate addiction is is a thing. And what most people don't realize is that they, they know that added sugar is not good. And so they know to look at the packages to get rid of added sugar. But what they often don't realize is that uh, refined carbohydrates turn to sugar immediately. And by refined carbohydrates, I'm including skim milk. I include cereal, breakfast cereals. Most vast majority of breakfast cereals fall in this category. Any highly processed foods, uh, these things turn to sugar in the bloodstream. And it's clear to see a lot of us have access to continuous glucose monitors now. And I recommend to the audience that they search around online for companies who would love to sell them one, whether they have diabetes or not. A lot of times, just a week or two of information from a continuous glucose monitor can change your life. It really can. You actually see 
what your meal does in your bloodstream. So important. So anyways, so I didn't know all of that. And I trashed my um, my um, health by being re- just uh, severely low carb, but also becoming severely sugar. And this includes cereals and starches uh, addicted. And so I knew I had to change something, this, especially after I had a stroke in the early 2000s. Uh, that was the shot over the bow because in my family, both my sisters were were disabled from stroke or stroke related conditions. So uh, I really had to. It made me sit up and take notice. Fortunately for me, it was mild, and I was able to recover within a year or two easily. And actually, nobody even knew I had it because it didn't disrupt my function that much. So anyway, that was that was really stunning. Uh, so I came across this website called the Weston A. Price Foundation. And although, you know, just telling you, I don't agree with everything on that site, uh, a lot of their nutritional recommendations turned me right around. The first thing I had to do is get uh, familiar with fat again. Uh, I could not recover unless I became familiar with fat and started uh eating things that had fat in them. And that was like the first step. I noticed it. Remember I said that uh, those dogs that looked really great, that had those beautiful coats, uh, were were so well-nourished and so gorgeous. Mm -hmm. And they had um, moist noses, moist pads. Um, Well, those dogs were on a higher fat diet than the other dogs. Yeah, so fat, I, I started making that connection and I said, I've got to start eating fat. And I started eating saturated fat. And I also started eating uh, fats that were not commercial seed oils. Um, and I continue to avoid commercial seed oils to this day. Um, I will do an extra virgin olive oil. I will do a virgin or extra virgin, which I think is just marketing in coconut oil. But anyway, I'll do a virgin or extra virgin coconut oil. Um, I will use uh, wild boar fat, and you can get this on Amazon, uh, to fry with. I will use always a highly saturated fat for frying. The reason is that uh, the double bonds, There's a chemi- in chemistry, it's called a double bond, and that double bond can be corrupted. It makes the chain weaker when exposed to heat. So uh, I do not use uh, oils with double bonds for frying at all. Um, and by just doing that much, then, of course, I was getting my fat-soluble vitamins that were so low in me. Vitamins D, A, vitamin K, K1 and K2, and vitamin E. Right. So all of those were available to me now. And I actually started recovering. And then I added red meat. That was one thing they recommended as well. I added red meat. First, I did iron supplements because I was so low in iron. I added red meat and started making red meat a constant uh, part of my diet. I would eat red meat at least twice a week. And now I just eat it whenever it's around. Um, because my iron now is, is high enough for me to think and function. Iron is important. Okay. And this is why I think people really need to know how much spinach they need to eat to get enough iron. I think it's something like between two and a half and five pounds. Seriously, people need to wow. know how much it takes. And also spinach has anti-nutrients in it, like oxalic acid, even has calcium in it, which can uh, prohibit uh, the absorption of the iron that's in it. So it's really, people say, oh, just like Popeye, you got to eat your spinach. Uh, not really. Vitamin A is another one. And, and I was really low in that. And I was depending on carrots and beta carotene for it. Well, I don't know what my genetics say, but I'm going to guess <clears throat> that I'm part of the group that cannot turn beta carotene into uh, vitamin A. And a study that kind of set things off in, and in terms of the nutrition community reexamining vitamin A uh, was done in Great Britain. And 
something like 40 and close to 50% of women studied in the UK could not convert beta carotene into vitamin A. So if you don't know who you are and you're relying on supplements that have beta carotene, even if you're very well-meaning, you're vegetarian or vegan, you may not be getting the vitamin A that you hoped for. And this can affect uh, your health and the health of your pregnancies and children. So um, it's really important to know about this. The active form comes from animals or animal-derived products, such as egg yolk and fish and fish oil, liver. Liver is a great source of vitamin E. So, um, so I really had to study and work to bring my health back. Uh, I probably <clears throat> messed a few things up. Anybody who sees me live notices that my head shakes. And uh, I do have uh, some neurological things going on. It's not Parkinson's, it's dystonia. Uh, it's from something I inherited called Ehlers-Danlos. But anyway, um, that, that aside, so there's some things that I think I might have been healthier later in adulthood if I had eaten better earlier, but we'll never know. I'd have to turn back time to figure that one out. But I can say that my health got so much better and my, my thinking got clearer. Um, and then, uh, but I still couldn't gain weight. And it turned out that I'd gotten celiac. Uh, the grains of today may actually promote celiac. So, and celiac disease can happen anytime in your life. And to lots of people that have the genetics, because the genetics are widespread for this disorder. Um, and what happens is you get this malabsorption. So what happened? I, my, uh, my weight dived down to about, I think maybe 22 pounds less than what I weigh now, which pretty much skeletal. And it wasn't until I offloaded gluten uh, that I could actually gain weight. So I didn't really wait for anyone to diagnose me with celiac disease. I knew I had malabsorption when I was eating uh, gluten. And then after I quit gluten, I didn't have it and I could gain weight. So I'm satisfied with that. It's funny, while I was trying to gain weight, I kept eating butter and cream and it didn't work. And I could not <laughs> figure it out. <laughs> I guess I was probably keto then. I didn't really go officially keto until December of 2006. It's funny, when you've been a sugar addict or any kind of addict, when you when you remember your quit date, you, you're it's confirmed. You were an addict. <laughs> yeah. Right. So I remember that. I remember my quit date and and my uh, health went up from there. So I've really been keto for 15 years or more. Yeah. So I'm wow. probably primarily carnivore. I I eat a few things that are a li little off the rail. I, may, I do make sure that I get uh, organ meats. Um, and I usually get them in things that are pretty, pretty common and can taste pretty good. It depends on your taste. I don't know. Not everybody loves sardines or dried fish, but it's interesting. Uh, Beal and Hortensi. Okay. So one of my critiques about carnivore was that I don't think it's a complete diet and beef. If you look at Beal and Hortensi, if all you're doing is eating round steaks or, you know, uh, anyway, you're probably not going to get everything, especially if you have, like me, um, a low metabolism, which happens as we get older. But also my metabolism was never very high unless I was lifting weights. So, um, and that was just uh, probably a few years in my life. So, um, so anyway, uh, so muscle, all muscle meat all the time, I think is not a good plan. And even adding fish, if it's still muscle meat, Still not enough for a lot of us. Uh, Beal and Hortensi on, on March 7th of this year uh, published on nutrient micronutrient density in foods. And what they said, it what they did is they put out this chart. They, they picked six micronutrients that tended to be low in the U.S. and also, well, in English 
Spanish-speaking countries, North America and Britain, North America and Britain. And uh, one of them is not necessarily low in the U.S. because uh, the folate basically is supplemented uh, into grains. That's how we enrich grains here. So we probably don't have that problem. But the other five are short. And if I could remember, I know it was iron. And it was, I think, maybe zinc and folate and B12. And anyway, I would have to look at it. Sorry. But if you go into, it's called priority micronutrient. Just just Google priority micronutrient density in food. Google that. You should come across it. It was uh, March 2007. B-E-A-L and Hortensi, O-R-T-E-N-Z-I. And you can get that paper for free. And you'll get some amazing charts. And what I noticed about the chart that they produced, they color-coded it. So the dark green is the richest and the light green is next rich. And then they had, you know, different colors. Uh, they had yellow for being low, not as rich. And what I found is that uh, animal-derived foods were at the very top. They were considered prime nutrition and liver was the richest. The only thing that was missing from the liver, oh yeah, calcium. Calcium was one of the things. Vitamin A was one of those as well. But uh, liver was rich in every single nutrient that tends to be low in the U.S. Um, except calcium. That was the only thing that was missing. And then if you wanted to get calcium, from an animal-derived source, because that was the richest, even over and above milk. Uh, you could get it from sardines with bone-in, or you could get it from canned salmon bone-in, or you could get it from dried fish, uh, like they have in Asian countries. It's pretty chewy, but I thought it was okay. Um, but those uh, are easily, what should I say, bioavailable sources of calcium because they, they're bone-in. And they're, and the ones that are canned are often cooked in such a way that the bones are quite soft and easy to absorb. So really what they were kind of implying, even though I, they weren't, that was not their message. It's, it was just their finding. All right. There's a difference. Some people have a message they want to give when they do a research, but basically what, what these people did is just went through the various nutrients in various foods and rank ordered them. That information has always been available. So they just rank ordered it. And when they rank ordered it, what they found is that offal was like number one. And that would be uh, liver, spleen, kidney, heart. These things are underutilized in the U.S. And so, and because a lot of us, myself included, are squeamish about some of these things, um, I, I, I came to the conclusion that maybe we should bring back sausages. Nobody knows what's in it. And if it's well-spiced, you'll never know what it was. You might just like it, right? But also it could put a little spring in your step. I found that true with liver for me. If I eat liver the day before or the day after, I really feel like I have more energy. There's sort of an X factor in liver uh, that makes me feel good. And I had to learn to like it, by the way. I used to feed it to the dog when I was growing up. And the dog was really healthy. And I ended up having anemia and lots of problems by age 12. So I know it did great stuff for the dog. And later on, I found out it could do great stuff for me. I just had to get used to it somehow. Anyway, so that's my spiel. I, I really think that uh, everybody who's doing carnival right now should take a look at Beal and Hortensi and see what sorts of things they can find that will... Um, add to their nutrition. Yeah, I think that's a great perspective. And um, I feel the same way about liver, by the way, when I have it or when I have, um, sometimes when I can't get fresh liver, I'll have uh, liver um, supplements. I feel a lot better and a lot more like energetic and um, upbeat. And uh, we also feed our, our dog 
um, a mix of organ meats as well. Uh, she eats completely raw. And uh-huh. uh, yeah, she has a great temperament. People give us compliments all the time on her coat and mm-hmm. how she keeps her color. Um, so yeah, it, it definitely does make a difference. A total difference. Even just changing uh, a meal and, and leaning toward a low carb or less carb uh, in the say in the morning can make a huge difference. You know, and even before the organ meat, if people just uh, who are eating just regular standard American diet, as they do. Anyway, a uh, little joke there. Yeah. Uh, anyway, uh, people eating standard American diet, even if they just did a um, uh, ditch the carb at breakfast. In fact, uh, Men's Health wrote uh, an article. You can, something about why to ditch the carbs at breakfast, right? And it talks about the energy and all this stuff. So I think if we went back, rolled back time and went back to before cereal was invented and uh, went back to some of the farming days where people would eat things like, I don't know, chitlins and all kinds of chitlins, by the way, is really rich in choline, something that is really hard to get in the American diet. We don't make enough to sustain ourselves inside our bodies. So we need choline as, as a from the outside. And when people started throwing away their egg yolks and getting rid of chitlins and organ meats, uh, they were throwing away a lot of that choline. And choline is essential for nervous system health. And also women who are supplemented with folate, for those women who are listening to this who are pregnant, uh, even if they're supplementing with folate and taking prenatals, if they're not getting choline, they still could have a spinal problem in their infant. So it's really important to embrace that egg yolk. Um, so anyway, uh, we we need to kind of roll back time and and eat that really rich uh, uh, carbohydrate free breakfast. And then for those of you who are not uh, low carb or keto or carnivore, uh, at lunch you will probably have to introduce some carbohydrates, or you're going to feel washed out by the afternoon. You're probably going to feel like you have no energy, but that strategy yields a lot of benefits. One of the things it can do is, all right, turns out we don't need carbs at all. Ask any, any Inuit up in the Arctic, or if they were still around, we could ask ice age uh, humans. Uh, You don't need it. You really don't need carbs. Uh, Getting along without carbs takes a while, and you may be a month adjusting to that. But once you're adjusted, you don't need it. And the reason you don't need it is because, okay, I think think in terms of drugs. So you have a short-acting drug like Xanax, which is highly addictive. And then the lesser addictive drugs are the ones that are long-acting. But the long-acting ones also keep you from having withdrawal during the day because they're, they're on for, for quite a bit of time. Very similar with something like Cheerios, okay, or uh, Wheaties or any of these very highly refined grains. It doesn't matter the brand. It, you know, any of these highly refined grains are going to give you a sugar spike because they turn rapidly into glucose and they just shoot up and then they drop you and then you don't feel well. In fact, you're probably hungry less than three hours later you're kind of circling the drain. And this is happening to your child at school too. So that 10, that 1030 snack that a lot of schools have is because these kids are kind of circling the drain uh, cognitively because just got a big letdown from their uh, fat-free, high, high carbohydrate breakfast. So if you, and maybe your kids, if you feel comfortable doing this, eat a low carbohydrate breakfast, what happens is that lack of carbohydrate is not going to starve your brain for fuel. Yes, the, the brain does need uh, glucose for fuel, but what a lot of people don't realize is that glucose could come from the protein in your meal that morning. That glucose could even come from the fat in your meal. There's a process that your body does called gluconeogenesis. And what it does is it makes glucose out of things you don't think of as being sugary. Um so interesting to me too, because this is the reason that type ones who cannot make um, insulin, so they have to take insulin. This is one of the reasons that type ones have to take insulin because although they're not getting carbohydrate, their protein is making carbohydrate. 
So that's why they need to have a shot anyway, uh, even if they're even if they're keto. So so that breakfast is going to give you long acting energy instead of getting the the addictive up and down of a refined carbohydrate. Now you're actually re, uh, producing glucose at a lower rate over a longer period of time, just like a long acting drug in a way. So it's going to keep you. Uh, having more energy in the morning, better cognition. Your kids are probably going to do better on their tests um, and um, also more energy because when you have a letdown from that carbohydrate, you're not going to have much energy. You're not going to be able to think very well, get really fuzzy, foggy headed. And if you tend to get high blood sugar, when you're up in the high blood sugar zone, brain fog, everyone complains of that. So, uh, and then hypoglycemia, shaky, distractible, irritable, kids act out in school. Yeah, hypoglycemia is a thing. It's low blood sugar. And when you have low blood sugar from giving yourself a shot of a very uh, refined carbohydrate, then you're going to feel pretty, pretty awful. So, um, yeah, so lots of benefits to just a keto breakfast. And then if you start adding, adding organ meats to your diet as well, uh, you're going to find that you actually do feel a little bit friskier, a little happier uh, over time. So there you go. Yeah, that's great. And Dr. Childers, can you talk a little bit about some of the writing you've done, like textbooks and and um, in other places and um, you know how your work is perceived by... Um, the rest of the psychiatric community? Do they um, oppose your views? They welcome them? Are people more open to it? How do you find that? Well, actually, it's interesting you ask that question because I didn't know how how they took it. I do know that the uh, AMA who reviewed one of my articles in 2011 um, said, oh, this is so interesting about blah, blah, blah. And then, and then nothing really came of that. But um, so to give you an idea, I'm, I think if, if people Google my name and go to images, you'll probably see this woman in long blonde hair all over the place uh, that has my name. That's usually me. Um, anyway, Ann Childers. Uh, so I'm, a, I'm an extreme introvert. And so I kind of sit behind my computer and do, you know, like, uh, Twitter, and then I'll write I'll write something or a chapter or something, and it gets out, and I don't realize how many people actually read what I write until I think it was 2018. Uh, there was a company that looks into social media and said I was basically one of the top English speaking uh, female doctors on the topic of diabetes and, and uh, metabolism related health, health subjects. So I, I don't realize that. And then I get this email from the Oregon Psychiatric Association saying, will you speak next spring? And I said, of course they will. <laughs> so I guess uh, now, I guess people are starting to become interested. And I think in large part, it's because of people like Chris Palmer at Harvard, um, who are uh, pioneering nutritional psychiatry. And so now that that's out there and the potential has been seen, I think uh, we're getting a lot more agreement and a lot more, what should I say, consideration uh, for our points of view. So, um, like I said, I don't expect people to totally agree with me, um, but I got to tell you, you know, um, uh, I am standing on the shoulders of giants. Uh, I don't make this stuff up. <laughs> I, I'm standing on the shoulders of giants. And although I may put together, put it together a little differently, uh, there are giants in the fields of anthropology and and also uh, nutrition and metabolism, biochemistry, Richard Feynman comes, comes to mind. I'm standing on the work of other people. Um, so I can't really take credit for it all, although I could take credit for my quirky point of view <laughs> about <laughs> it. Uh, anyway, uh, so I think I'm getting 
recognized in a positive way. And my philosophy is that if people don't see it now, maybe it's wrong or maybe it's right, but people are just not ready. You see, I never know until it all pans out. But so far, I can tell you that my point of view has really benefited me and my family. Uh, so, so I'm hopeful that the direction I'm going in is true. Yeah, I, I mean, I think you're being modest in saying that you're only standing on the shoulders of giants. I think you've contributed quite a lot. Um, and can you? I wanted to talk a little bit about. Um, I, th- I think most people have probably seen your pinned tweet um, on mm-hmm. Twitter of uh, the graphics that mm-hmm. <laughs> are worth. Uh, um, a thousand words um, of showing the different digestive organs of different animals. Mm-hmm. Um, can you talk a little bit about some of your work um, that leads to the concept that humans are carnivores? Yeah. Um, I'll preface this by telling you, well, I have, I just mentioned I have Ehlers-Danlos and Ehlers-Danlos, we tend to be on the spectrum from ADHD to autism. I don't know where I fit. I know for sure I have the ADD. <laughs> we have a little bit of, quirkiness, but anyway, eccentricity. But I think the the problem with ADD is it makes it really hard to get through standard schooling where you have to sit at a desk, right? Um, But uh, the good part about ADD is being able to wander around and be curious, if you use it that way, about a lot of different things. So um, I don't tend to stay in my lane (laughs) <laughs> I was encouraged to do so on Twitter, but my personality just doesn't allow it. In fact, I'm also on Myers-Briggs. I'm an INFP. I'm an introvert, intuitive feeling and perceiving, which you can substitute procrastination, piles of paper. Yeah, that's me. That's me. And, there, and one of the reasons is because I'm interested in so many things. I can't really, my brain doesn't sit still. <laughs> I can sit still now, but my brain doesn't. So what, what happens is I end up going all through the literature. I'll go into anthropology and I'll take a look at biochemistry and then I'll take a look. And so I tend to love to uh, explore patterns and see if I can put it all together. Weston A. Price actually got me started on this. Uh, what they said is uh, Weston A. Price actually, um, you can read his book, nu- write this down, Nutrition and Physical Degeneration. It's from, I think, 1939. Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, it's free online. Just Google it, get the PDF and read through it. I tell you, I've read it several times. Uh, it's really important work. Uh, there may be parts, there are parts of it that don't stand up today in modern times, but what he did on base is extremely valuable. So he traveled with National Geo and he found pockets of human beings who had never met with European food ever. They were still on their original diet and he documented what they were eating as best he could. And then he made measurements, being a dentist, of their um, dental arches and started taking photographs uh, so that there were actually examples of people before and after. And the befores, you see these beautiful teeth, you see these sparkling smiles, you see these people feel good. They're probably getting those organ meats. Anyway, um, so you can see that, that things are going very well developmentally for them. And then you see the next generation after the Europeans' foods came and you see tooth decay, gum disease, you see uh, jaw deformities. Um, in fact, in the before picture, all these people have their wisdom teeth. Nobody has to have them pulled. In the after picture, yes, the jaws are very small. The teeth need to be pulled. Um, it's, it's just a disaster. That actually happened recently in El Salvador. In fact, okay. So uh, Weston A. Price got me started by just looking at skulls. And I thought, oh my gosh, uh, he found a tooth decay, like a tiny cavity that, that is in the process of healing. You, you hear me? Healing? It was actually healing. Uh, in about one in three, 300 teeth and the people on their old diet. And then he did it with people on their new diet. And it was just rampant. It was terrible. In El Salvador, um, I think it was... Uh, uh, PBS reported um, tooth decay. If you just Google children tooth decay El Salvador PBS, I think you'll find it. 
but it's just heartbreaking. These children lived in the countryside. They never needed a dentist. They had full, full mouth, full of teeth. They had beautiful development. They never needed orthodontia. And then came the junk food. And what happened after that was just so pitiful. And the pain that these children experienced and the bewilderment of their parents who are also getting diabetes for the first time. So, uh, so these foods really do make a difference. So with the, with encouraged by the Weston A. Price Foundation and, and Nutrition and Physical Degeneration, I started going back and back and back and trying to find out about the tooth decay and, gee, what did people in the 1500s do? I even came across uh, some information. I wish I could try find it because I've had a hard time finding it since, uh, where some a lot of times you'll see these paintings and they won't smile. And one of the reasons they may not smile is because their teeth are all black. Or they've had their central incisors, which are those beautiful front teeth and the upper jaw, uh, pulled because they're afraid of abscesses. And abscesses, because of how they were eating, we're actually getting into what they call the triangle of death. Triangle of death is the middle of the face. It's kind of a conduit for carrying uh, infection to the brain. And people can die of their abscesses if they are, are hit the incisors. So people actually preemptively would pull their teeth. So, so even though we have a long history of eating these uh, highly refined carbohydrates, uh, we, we don't do well with them. And Philippe Pujol up at University um, Washington in Seattle. Yes, University of Washington, Seattle. I think he's a, I think he's still an associate professor there. I'm not sure in dentistry. He wrote Dietary Carbohydrates and Dental Systemic Disease. And what he said is the first thing that happens is the uh, gum disease and especially the tooth decay. The tooth decay, uh, the pain from a from a rotted tooth is basically a five alarm fire that you can't ignore. But if you do manage to ignore it, if you just fix it and keep eating the same way, you will have uh, lots of uh, non-communicable modern diseases later on, chiefly type two diabetes. Okay. So, so he made the, the connection uh, that Weston A. Price made uh, between the, the food and the modern diseases that we suffer from. That said, we are living longer, okay? But we also have dentists and doctors and we have um, uh, supplements and we have lots of things uh, that help us to live longer. And we have widely available food. We don't have to hunt it anymore and maybe fall off a cliff or get eaten by a tiger. So uh, so we do live longer. And that's true also for persons uh, in the polar regions uh, who used to eat a traditional diet but now are eating um, uh, processed foods. However, we pay the price for it. So our quality of life uh, is not as good. Um, and then going back even further in time, remember I was, I was talking about uh, the gut. We made some kind of a turn that no other primate did that I have studied, all right? And I haven't studied them all, but I can tell you that uh, we are different from any other primate. So sometime during, if you believe in evolution, during our evolution, we became different. And it, it may have started with some ancestors who contributed to our uh, DNA. If you think of our DNA as kind of like a river, and you think of all of these creatures as tributaries to the river, that's kind of how we evolved. It wasn't a straight line. We didn't go from monkey to human. It's not the way it went. Uh, but if you look at all these contributors, for example, Lucy, who was in Ethiopia, uh, she's she was the first one. Australopithecus afarensis is her real name. Um, she was found in, I think, uh, yeah, the Ethiopian area, which is the um, eastern, uh, northeastern part of Africa. And uh, she looked like a first grader and she looked an awful lot like an ape, but she was bipedal. So she could actually walk on two feet. And uh, she was a, a scavenger, which is the first thing that happened when humans uh, were introduced to me. Uh, and we were introduced uh, through her 
lineage and that contribution to our DNA, if that makes sense. So um, she actually was using stone tools and she made perfect rectangles in bones, carving out the calcium from the bone. She also, uh, one of the bones they found that she and her tribe uh, had been working with had two parallel marks. Uh, that, as far as we know, was a, a time of rapid brain development. So she was already into geometry <laughs> that early on. And then uh, later on, uh, as we our brains began to grow, we began to lose hair and develop sweat glands, and we became joggers. And we became taller as well, by the way. So we would be jogging after animals that could not sweat, but we could. So we had natural air conditioning. So um, we would basically wear the animal down. And there's some beautiful. There's a beautiful example of that on uh, the BBC. Has a beautiful example of that. And I think if you key in persistence hunting, uh, you'll see something about an eight-hour hunt. That's it. Uh, there are actually some some tribesmen who are still hunting this way to this day. So when people ask you, well, do you need teeth? You need fangs. You need these big, sharp teeth. No, we didn't. Uh, we had, first off, our bodies changed, and then we developed technology. The Adelatl is an amazing spear chucker, and uh, that thing can launch a spear as, up to 70 miles an hour, sometimes faster, depending on the, the spear and the skill of the hunter. So uh, we were able to bring down mammoths and and feast on those for ages because, you know, it, it could feed a village and uh, it was during the Ice Age. So you had this natural icebox uh, to preserve it. So all of that was pretty great. And then, uh, <coughs> and actually we had some tools. We had like stone tools so we could cut. So we were able to scavenge for also meat that was not a fresh kill and that we didn't kill. And that's often called carrion. And we developed very acidic stomachs. Our stomachs, when they're healthy, the pH is about 1.5, which is uh, in the range of what would be called a facultative scavenger, which is probably what we did. So we could hunt, we could bring down an animal by overheating it out in the desert, and then it would drop to its knees and die from heat exhaustion. Uh, and then we'd be able to harvest that animal. Or we could wait till other animals killed something. And as long as it was fresh enough, we could eat it. Uh, there's a beautiful example of that called men stealing meat from lions. And I understand that pride was like 15 strong and they had cubs. So they were pretty motivated to eat that kill. And uh, three uh, tribesmen basically sauntered up with a lot of bluster and faked him out and chased him away from their kill just long enough to take a haunch and pull it up, pull it away and bring it back to the village. So um, this is the kind of kind of tricks that we learned along the way. And then once we had technology like bow and arrow, atlatl spear. Uh, then we were able to harvest even better and not be too close to the animals uh, because that's actually more dangerous. So being able to chuck a spear or to, to shoot a bone arrow was a lot safer and it ensured a better survival of human beings. So we have a long and glorious history of uh, evolution and compared to other apes, other animals in our uh, category, primates, uh, we have a much larger amount of small intestine and a much lower amount of colon. And there's a reason for that. During all of this time that I told you about us learning how to hunt and learning how to, uh, to uh, scavenge, our gut changed along with the brain. And it's interesting because there's a gut-brain axis. They're both connected. It's very interesting. In fact, there's probably more serotonin, dopamine in the gut than there is in the brain in, in a human being. So anyway, um, our gut was really primarily 
uh, suited for meat eating. And we do not digest cellulose. Look it up. Trust me on that. And plants have cellulose walls. They have cellulose structures. So that's probably why you and I don't just go out and graze on the lawn when we're out of food. It's because we can't digest it. We cannot. And in fact, we can't digest it any better than a cat or a dog. Whereas the other other primates, they have lots of colon and that colon is stocked with a microbiome that is extremely well-suited for breaking down cellulose. So they are able to make uh, small chain fatty acids and all kinds of things out of what they eat in the colon. And um, they're also able to make micronutrients, but uh, to put it delicately, they have to recycle what they leave. Excuse me. But anyway, in order to get the B12. <laughs> so um, anyway, it's called coprophagy and apes do it. There are lots of animals that do it. Rabbits do it. Anyone who's raised rabbits probably knows that. Uh, anyway, so what they make in the colon, they can't just reabsorb it unless they bring it back around. That's the problem with something like that. And thankfully, we don't have to do that. It's pretty great. So, um, but we can eat plants. We can, and we can actually get nourishment out of them. And the way we do it is we cook. Okay. So there's that technology again. So we can cook. We can also ferment. They can ferment it inside their bodies with their own microbiome, which is breaking it down. That's what fermentation is. Like your yogurt, you've got bacteria in there. Uh, fermentation. So they can do fermentation there. When we try to ferment, we just tend to fart. So, um, but it doesn't really get us very far ahead. But if you if you make some, if you do something like capture uh, microorganisms in a jar, and those microorganisms work on your cucumbers and turn them to pickles and make the make the broth sour, uh, that's fermentation, and that also breaks down the cellulose, and then those products are easy for us to digest. So I would never say, oh, just get away from plants, never eat another plant again. For one thing. Plants may be giving us something that we'd otherwise miss because we don't eat liver and we don't eat offal, et cetera, et cetera. So that may be our backup plan, so to speak. So it's probably not wise to just say, scrap all the plants because Dr. Childers says we're all carnivores. Uh, those of you who don't eat a, a well-rounded carnivore diet, maybe that's how you do it. Uh, but I would say, let's see if we can get offal back into the diet. Let's see if we can get bones back into the diet. I think that'll probably take care of most of the problem. By the way, it's interesting, you know, uh, lions are uh, dedicated. <clears throat> They're obligate carnivores, excuse me. <clears throat> but if you feed them all muscle meat, they will end up having uh, neurological problems. And that's been discovered. So, uh, so um, just like, uh, our dogs who are eating raw food, you definitely want to make sure that they get that uh, you get awful too if you're if you're going to go with carnivore. So. Yeah, that's great advice. And Dr. Childers, this has been fascinating. Um, I I really appreciate how um, deeply you study so many different topics, and like you said, just have an interest in in a wide ranging of things and can bring it all in, um, to form these perspectives. It's, it's really valuable. Um, where, where can folks find out more about you? And I'll of course have, uh, links to everything in the show notes. Oh yeah. I'm on Twitter and Childers MD. That's probably where I spend most of my time on social media. Uh, you can also, uh, find our practice with some papers. If you want to read a few things at, Life Balance NW uh, dot com. That's L I F as in Frank, E B as in boy, A L A N C E N as in Nancy W dot com. It stands for Life Balance Northwest. And we've got some papers there that might be of interest to you as well. Great. Well, this has been fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you so very much. If you enjoy the show, please consider supporting the Carnivore Cast on Patreon. By becoming a patron, you'll help us reach more people and continue to create content on Carnivore. There are also exclusive perks available, such as private Q&As, consultations with me, and more. Become a supporter at patreon.com slash carnivorecast. Check the episode description for the link. 
Thank you, and I'll see you there. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Carnivore Cast. If you enjoyed this episode, please review on iTunes. It really helps us out and share it with a friend. What questions would you like answered or who would you like to hear from in the carnivore research community? You can find me on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at carnivorecast or go to carnivorecast.com. You can also email me at info at carnivorecast.com. I'd love to hear from you. Until next time, keep it carnivore.